first of all, Sir Tony, welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Tim. Thank you. Um, this is a glass of champagne, which I uncorked in your honour. Um, thank you. And indeed, uh, my relationship with archaeology came up in the citation. So, uh, you know, time is part of the reason I was on it, which is lovely. And, and I knew you for so long that this, this has got vague feeling of talking to one of my exes. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> we were together for, what, 22 years, for God's sake. Yes, and never a crossword, Tim, just I, like with your exes. I, I, I think, I, I, I was thinking about that. And first of all, I'd like to say thank you for being there for that time. I, I really oh. mean that. I yeah. think you're... The fact that you went through the wet and rainy days with sod all archaeology in, <laughs> and at the end of it managed to get yourself together to do the end piece to camera, and the fact that I don't, you, I don't think you missed one with a sniffle, a cold, or a, which was remarkable. I mean, it says something about you know genetic energy, I suppose, or something. But I just thought that was a real, that's a real block of work, isn't it? I suppose what we all felt after a while is it actually didn't matter if we didn't find anything on that day, because when you do a quest, it's hard. And if we were constantly revealing things all the time, then people wouldn't really buy into the notion that what we, was doing, what we were doing was real. They'd think, oh, it's just telling. But I, mean, I remember, I'm sure you remember too, I think it was in in Derbyshire, it was near Manchester somewhere, we, we did three whole days where we didn't find anything. Unfortunately, it was probably about episode 14 or 15 or something. And you and I, we didn't lose our bottles. If it had been episode one, we'd both been tearing our hair out and saying, we've got no show. But we knew that what was important was the investigation. So I think I always wanted to come. And I knew that if I was looking like a drowned rat, and Phil was too, and we were desperately trying to interview each other at half past four in the afternoon, wishing to God we were in the pub, we knew it would be good telling. I always felt that your opening piece to camera, in three days we're going to find X. There was a point when it sort of got to you, it got to me as well, that we kind of knew we were trying to communicate, communicate something to the viewer by the end of the programme. And and some of those sites where day t day two, nothing, and you're thinking, well, and and we start looking at the researcher developer. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying we could always sacrifice one of the researchers as a sort of <laughs> to Odin. Yeah, yeah. And I remember in the early days we we used to do some quite artistic work in those opening pieces when Graham Dixon was the director, dear Graham. Um, he would devise you to be walking through a marsh like Athelney and, and sort of the sun would rise, the mists would cross and you'd say, in three days, <laughs> we're going to find X. And I thought, oh, crikey, I hope, you know, we do. I think it's interesting the way you describe that, because I think that one of the uh, developments, the maturities that happened during time two, was that when it started, we felt we needed to employ my skills, for better or worse, as a storyteller, as an actor. We needed Graham to do beautiful stuff. It was really, I think, only once we got the confidence to know that all that mattered was the archaeology, that we could simplify 
all that stuff up the top and just say to the audience, you know what this is, you know the deal, this is what we're doing this week, let's get into it as quickly as possible. And I think that was probably a relief to all of us. And apart from anything else, it meant it didn't tie up the first half a day of the three days on doing beautiful work for the first five minutes of the show. Yes, I seem to remember quite a few shoots of you wandering through Somerset mud and reeds, sort of appearing. The other thing, Tim, uh, you saying about how, how you would write all this elaborate stuff at the beginning was that for a long time you would write enormous elaborate amounts of stuff at the, the end and up some, which I had to learn like a half past six on the third evening you present me with this full scout uh there was hey poetry that was mate poetry yeah. it was poetry but i think it, well it was more war and peace than the sonnets <laughs> but but again i think what we learned after a while was that what the audience really took away with them was two or three Memories. If they were real archaeological nerds, they would have taped it anyway, and they would go back and go this, this, and this, that, and this, that, and that. But I think to most people, what they needed was just the reward of it was a field, and now I know a thing. Yeah. And and it was it was liberation for me. <laughs> I didn't have to learn so much. And I remember the strain of that because you know we didn't always go to bed early i mean you were quite good at leaving about 10:30 but there were times when things went on a little late yeah. so you had to then get up in the morning at the crack of dawn it was the fresh air all the time that knackered me you know you were out there in the wind you'd have lunch in the wind then and that final moment and i often saw you in your car disappearing at the end and I, and I i i don't know what you were doing i imagine you were singing but how you felt when you left having done that final piece to camera i think i always knew that i needed my energy and i you know, so before now but you know when we started i was young middle-aged but i think i'd learned uh, both through meditation and just by being an actor, that when you're off, you really need to get keep that, that battery low so that when you're in demand, bang, you can start again. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of the archaeologists on the third morning when they had their second hangover running, well, they were kind of on their own. I wouldn't come to them until about mid-morning, so they got that amount of, of time. But every morning I had to be, hey, this is so exciting, the camera first thing. So I desperately needed yeah. to be on, on top of it. And the few mornings that I did have a hangover, I really, I just so didn't enjoy doing the show. And if I'm not enjoying it, the audience wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. Various people decided that having done the whole stressful thing of trying to do archaeology in three days, trying to uncover sites nobody had looked at before. We'd then have a crack at doing it live. Um, And suddenly there we were in Buckingham Palace, um, digging up the Queen's Lawn or one of the live sites in York. And that thing where the producer would come and you'd be running with an entire crew following you and we'd be hearing five, three, two, what, what do you remember about the lives? Is it traumatic or did you think it was worth the pressure? You know that, Hunter S., that writer Hunter S. Thompson, 
who wrote, wrote all those drug-fueled books. Yeah, and amazing. his whole day was like, bam, 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 bam. That was how it was for me. I have to say, the last thing I wanted was any artificial stimulus. But I, w I would always lose at least three or four pounds in weight during the course of those days. Uh, because it, it, it was like that. You just had to stay in the moment all the time. And the moment was constantly going away from you. Because the technology was so temperamental uh, that everything kept going down. You weren't sure if everything was working. People were rushing by, yelling at you. If you put your script down, it was suicide because someone would clear it away and you would have no idea what was happening. There was one live shoot, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was one, a moment where the camera was following me. I went left, they went right, and I lost the crew. I had to keep talking, and they were doing pretty shots because they were desperately trying to find me. And we're in a ruined castle, and I was over there still desperately talking. They were going, shoot that, shoot that, shoot that, until eventually we met up again on the other side of the castle. That was a buzz. I really, really did enjoy it, but I enjoyed it in that kind of wild-eyed way that you would if you were on a yacht and there was a storm. Yes, that was Borsy, I think, wasn't it? Remember that skull that head-chopped the... That thing. Yeah, I do. Yeah. There was one classic moment that I remember when we prepared a scene, um, desperately trying to hopefully make it happen when you arrived. We knew you were coming and uh, Phil was in the trench with Margaret Cox, who, as you know, is just a genius when it comes to bones and had pointed out to Phil repeatedly that this skeleton had a pubic tubercle which is the thing that the, the womb hangs off, the muscles hang off for the woman. And here you came rattling across. Phil was scraping away, turn up. He said, here, Tony, I think I've got a tubic pubicle here. And Margaret <laughs> with laughter. And the, the whole trench was shaking. Um, and on, on we went. Um, I, you think that, um, uh, I think that... I think that... There were big one for me. One big difference between the lives and the other ones is normally on the other ones, I would go over to a trench. I would have a conversation, probably with you, although you might be managing another trench, but certainly with the the director and the archaeologists. And I, I would ask them what they found, what the route through to that was, what were the major points that they wanted me to hit. And I would kind of orchestrate it in my mind. And then when they said action, there would, as it were, be a kind of dance, which the um, cameraman and I would know and the, the contributors would know. They would roughly know who I was going to go to next and the kind of thing that they would want me to say. But then when we got to the live, there was never any time for that. And, I mean, you gave a very vivid example of that. But um, uh, I would go up to a trench. I wouldn't have a clue what was going on. And, and we, were, we would all be improvising. And that was, that was lovely, really, because that is life, isn't it? But it's life under great pressure. If I gave you the time team crew, we'd all turn up alarmingly enough, in the trucks, and everybody would be there, and you could take us anywhere you want in the world to any site. We're going to stick a trowel in your hand. You're going to be there with us. What sort of places would you like to take us if you had a chance? I know exactly where I would like to take you. It's, it's Tyrion's in the Peloponnese. Um, most people know something about the uh, Trojan 
War and Homer and all those stories. And if you said the word Mycenae, they would vaguely know that there was some lovely old archaeology there. And there is a, dotted all over the Peloponnese the little echoes of that, that particular culture. Tyrians is bonkers. Tyrians, Tyrians the the buildings, they call them cyclopic because they actually believe the cyclops must have built them because it's all so massive. Um, and I would love to introduce an audience to Tyrians and to see what is around it. But of course, the restrictions on Greek archaeology, quite understandably, are so enormous. And uh, the Greeks aren't that friendly with us about our uh, archaeology. Apparently, we went out with a, a few tons of archaeology in our pockets in the 19th century, and yeah. it's still a museum. So, well, I kind of kind of understand that, but that would be my dream. Yeah, interesting enough, I went to Mycenae last year and stood in the tomb of Atreus, which is this huge treasury of Atreus, this beautiful beehive location. Interesting enough, one of the people we're working at the moment has been working on a site quite near Tyrans and has had great time with the archaeologists. And it's the place where the main dye came from for Roman purple robes. Oh. And it's got a hillside full of buildings that have not yeah. been looked at. It, it's tumbled down and um, it's a lovely site. I always felt, do you remember that moment when, I, I, I don't know whether you were occasionally there, but we'd certainly walk into a commissioning editor at Channel 4 and I would have a list of sites. It would be like Manchester, Newcastle. Yeah. And then halfway down, I'd slip in the Caribbean Nevis and inevitably they'd look at you and say, holiday or what, you know? And and I think some of those sites, we went to Nevis, we went to Spain. Um, we did a lot of- To America. America, St. Mary's City. Um, memories of Nevis, because I think both you and I, I felt we could do this and you could put us anywhere. You could have put us in Egypt, you could put us on a Greek site and we'd have done exactly what we do in the UK, carefully do the archaeology. So we ended up and we had to do two sites to, you know, make it worthwhile. An Amerindian site and an early uh, colonial site. I remember. And we ended up in the Caribbean with jungle and God. How, what are your memories of that? I know both you and I were very ambitious to do a global series because we both felt that we could keep them as domestic we could keep them as much fun but on an enormous scale and i think channel four never wanted that they always wanted it to be really domestic uh, i remember the channel four commissioning editor said to me once the perfect time team would be a back garden in nottinghamshire where you find an anglo-saxon burial site uh, by their fish pond and we did do you remember it had coins rawns that's how good your memory is better than mine yeah so that that was their ambition but we we always and the other is money of course because the travel was so enormous and now given covid i think you and i are going to be uh, pretty wobbly old men before we were ever asked to to, uh, to do that but the thing about nevis i suppose is 
that it was the antithesis of having a jolly holiday. It was such hard work. The temperature on one of those islands is absolutely colossal, which you kind of don't notice except you get brown when you're on holiday. But we had to get up at something like half past four in the morning in order to get to the site um, and have enough hours of a decent temperature. And then we had to travel through all this kind of it felt almost as though we were in the Amazon. There was so much dense tropical uh, rainforest in order to get back to somewhere relatively cool and then start again at three o'clock in the afternoon, work through. By eight o'clock when we got back home, we were completely wiped out. And then we kind of did that for three days. And then on the fourth day, we were on the on the plane back to England. Uh, I remember the archaeology absolutely very, very vividly. To be honest, in my ignorance, I don't think I'd realised that there were Amerindians in virtually all of the Caribbean islands, all of whom we seem to have systematically slaughtered. It's one of the, the great obscenities of our colonialism. Um, and, uh, and kind of recapturing little memories and little observations about those people who were there far beyond the British settlers, far beyond the Portuguese or the Arabs who may have landed up there at some time, these wonderful people who are just echoes in our memory. I think that was the most vivid memory to me. On the, on the seashore, you'd find little bits of worked tool that was theirs. And, and I, I think, I, I hope we achieved it. I think on those overseas sites, we did show, I mean, as you know, I was trying to, get a world time team going one way or another. And there was a, a funny transition in America between <clears throat> doing real archaeology and history and then doing ice road truckers. I think that I think that's always been the problem for us. We were very lucky that we worked for Channel 4, who by and large really protected the integrity of what we wanted to do. They even, after a couple of years, gave us enough money to, to uh, do the post-production uh, proper archaeological work. Yeah. Every other television company we went to was so imbued with some kind of showbiz morality that almost as soon as we went to them, it all became tawdry. So probably, in a way, it's best that we did stay as clear as we did. Um, one of the things uh, that we ask a lot of people when we're chatting about interviews, uh, this is the Tony Robinson Museum of Time Team Finds. And this is a bit like a, this is a dreadful memory exercise, which I should have, we should have exchanged notes on, I suppose. But I'm, I have a connected question with this, which is now you're doing a series about the Thames, doing walks in history. What do you, do you, what sense do you get about the difference between history and when you've got an artifact in your hand? But first, what artefacts do you remember from Time Team and would you like in your personal collection of Time Team finds? I think when we first started, uh, what I wanted to do was dig down about a few feet and then find the pointy bit on the top of a pyramid. <laughs> it was always the, the, the biggest, most perfect, most exotic thing that one could possibly find. The more we got into Time Team, the more I realised that what it was able to offer was the mark of ordinary people in the landscape. And after a while, that's what I used to get emotional about. It was almost as though they'd signed an autograph book and then buried it and left it for me. So it's something like um, a Roman tile with a dog's paw print on 
was great because I always remember when I was little and my dad made a little concrete path uh, down to the shed uh, and he laid it in the day and then the next day he came back and there were all these cats paw prints and I remember the language that he, he used and it was just like the guy who made that was just like my dad and would be just as furious. Or I remember a, a site, which I think we did in Rutland, where it was like a, a big, big wooden medieval uh, house or, or manor. And there were two lumps of wood, which we found dissociated from each other. Well, each one was marked with what joint it was and just the initials of the, the joint and we were able to put them back in together and it's like that, that was him displayed to that he probably got a roll in his mouth and he, he copy of the sun in his back pocket and and that was the work he was doing and and like that i can remember when we discovered the the uh country cathedral the one that uh, henry the eighth smashed up there was this beautiful carving from the church which had been in one of the pillars but then when you spun it around it was just kind of raw because that bit was going to go slotting into the pillar and there was real back of a fag packet scratch of what it was going to look like at the front and it was as though the master mason he was going to go away for a bacon sandwich down the road and he just said to the uh, the trainee look this is what we're going to do so if you just carve that that bit and i'll be back in half an hour those kinds of things were the ones that i really treasured I was watching a program recently and um, I found a note. Tony gets trowel, goes into trench and finds flint arrowhead or piece of pottery. Um, you and I occasionally, when Phil wasn't looking, sneaked in um, and had a bit of a scrape. <laughs> it was as dangerous for me as it was for you. <laughs> the one that I remember most and we never shot it precisely because we, we weren't trying to advocate that people like you and me should have a scrape. We wanted that to be done by professionals. Um, we were down on uh, a Roman site and we had a Roman mosaic specialist with us. And he said to me, I reckon about two inches below us, there is a mosaic floor. And I said, oh, I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll, I'll go and get Tim, I'll go and get the cameras. He said, no. We'll just check it, you and me, just to see if there is. And I said, well, I can't, I'm not an archaeologist. He said, look, the thing about floors is they're robust. If it wasn't robust, it would be a pretty, pretty rubbish floor. I'll stand over your shoulder. Here's a trowel. And while everyone else was off, I was the first person to reveal a tiny bit of this mosaic floor, which was best of, you know, the, the best part of 2,000 years old. And I think apart from the occasional wonderful meal and some great sex, it's the moment in my life that I remember most. The, the whole mystery of seeing something, you begin with a few, and you think, oh, this is going to be a corridor mosaic, a few lines, and then you get a squirt of a design of flower. and that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The yeah. first mosaic, the first little tile I got, the first yeah. tesseract, was white, and I thought exactly what you just said, it's a flipping corridor, <laughs> and then you go further and there's a little bit of black, it's a corridor with a little bit of 
pretty on it. And then you get that first sort of ochre one, and then, oh, it's a floor, it's a floor. <laughs> and the tragedy of it was that, that when eventually the other archaeologists came in, and we exposed it to a big damn floor, it was almost perfect, except there were two big gouges out of it, which were the deep ploughing, which farmers had only been doing there for five years. And, you know, you and I were always constantly, particularly sort of trying to crowbar in moments on the television to say, please, please, be ever so careful when you do plough because it's it's so easy to ruin our, our shared heritage. But so that was that was not a great moment. One of the things that I think not many people realised over the years is that you could dive. <clears throat> And I remember quite a few dive sites, uh, Schlanggorse, uh, you in a big dry suit and Carenza in a big dry suit in the old days, um, Tinmouth, um, where you had a little paddle and, and, and Phil wasn't very well. That diving site, again, that felt to me like us stretching what we could do. If you could dive, we could get a cameraman down with you. Phil could dive. I remember taking Phil on a training thing for diving and we could not sink him. He was like hollow man. The guy was putting sinks, bits of lead weight in his boots and everything. Do you still dive? I still get my mask and my snorkel on and uh, float along the surface and look down. And to be honest, there is an awful lot of great archaeology which you, you can see virtually from the surface. So... I have lost a little bit and I regret it, but I've done it. You know, I had 10, 15 golden years where I was diving onto sites. Yeah, and I remember you up in Scotland on Isla in some lake. And uh, I thought, wow, this looks like some sort of action archaeology program here. We've got diving going on here, which was great. Um, And single single malt whiskey, too. (laughs) That, that was the worst ever day on Time Team. It was as though everybody on the whole site had been stricken by the same plague. <laughs> I'd never seen so many action-faced people in my life. <laughs> and I remember the brand. It was Bunnahabin, <laughs> which I rather like because it's the one that's got the song, Westering Home with a song in the... Uh, that one. Uh, the other one I remember diving connected at Langors. Do you remember that final scene where we'd spent three days with Damien Goodburn creating a wooden boat? And Damien was pretty hard on the ground with his guys. He'd driven them overnight. And finally, we had this log hollowed out. And you and Phil went off in it. And the cameras were all ready to take you. And the thing had a life of its own. It just sort of snaked. Yes, I think one of the things that we discovered was how difficult it is for anybody nowadays to comprehend uh, prehistoric boat work and certainly very, very, very difficult for us to use it in the way that they did. There are so many boat programmes that I did with Time Team and Time Team documentaries where we ended up up to our waists in water. Even with water, you know, when, when, when there were Bronze Age boat specialists with us because we... Just can't quite do it. If you had to choose one programme, one or two programmes to stand by out of the time team oeuvre, as we might call it, is there one or two that that you'd say, because I watched one the other day, I hadn't watched it for ages, series 12 to 16, and I sat there thinking, 
this is really a nice, great, enjoyable. I, I, I was like, going, this is good. Yeah, the one I would really, really defend is the one where we found out in South Wales, where we found the whole thing was a ripoff. Oh, yes. Legadwe. Legadwe, that's right. Yeah. Uh, over a period of time, different people had just stuck things in the ground. And the whole thing looked like the most awe-inspiring site. And I remember by two-thirds of the way through day one, the, arch- the archaeologists were saying to you, we've got to get away from this. This is so going to undermine what we do because it's all phony. And you said, and you were absolutely right, no, what we can show is how archaeology works. We're going to go to everything on this site, just like CSI do, and show how you discover whether something is real archaeology or not. And we did that over three days. And apparently, I was very, not nervous about it, but I thought people might kick up a fuss about it. But apparently for a long while, they used to show it in schools to kids who were studying uh, GCSE archaeology. I don't think there is such a thing now, tragically. Um, But... So they could see actually how archaeologists approach problems. And um, uh, just for those who didn't see it, we had a, a we had a medieval wall that had a Victorian jam jar under it, a standing stone that Francis could push over and that wasn't on the 1946 aerials, and uh, an, an Iron Age sword that had a piece of modern barbed wire going over the top of it, which Stuart identified. And I think that was what my favourite thing was that Stuart was able to yes. to date the barbed wire. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes, there was a typology of, of, of barbed wire. Final thing, and it would be lovely to come back and talk some other day. I know you oh. have, uh, um, in a sense, political interests about archaeology. You and I care about getting fines protected, getting sites protected and all the rest of it. Um, but I didn't want to end today without a few thoughts about Mick. Um, my friend, your friend, you knew Mick before I did. And it was the joy of that program was you and I knew that we could always go back to Mick. And just a, a couple of memories for him, of him to end on, really. I think possibly what Mick would have liked to, to say um, was that he brought landscape archaeology into the popular imagination. You and I knew about the famous book by Hoskins about landscape archaeology, which I suppose had come out 10, 15 years before Time Team. But everybody thought that archaeology was about digging a hole, finding a thing and taking it away. It was Mick who taught me and taught a wider audience that landscape is like a book where on chapter one you start and you know very little. And gradually you open up a whole landscape. And the finds are great, but the finds are just part of the story. And the layers are just as much part of it that reveal time as you excavate downwards. The link there is between what you've got and what other people have discovered in other places. The link between what you've discovered and the nearby church or the shape of the nearby road, or the bends in the river and how those bends have changed over time. The fact that archaeology is a fascinating essay and that you could only tell the importance of an archaeological site by walking in 
two or three miles in each direction. I think that's that was what Mick taught me. Um, Mick as a person was one of the most Rabelaisian people that I've ever met. And anybody who doesn't know what Rabelaisian is, Google it rather than me having to go into detail. Um, absolutely lovely to talk to you. It's, it's, it's a great pleasure that um, you've said that you would um, welcome the chance to be an honorary patron of what happens next. Uh, you are That's part of Time Team's DNA. Um, and you are part a huge part of that story and and just listening to you talking makes me understand why it 's so nice to feel that you have some ongoing connection with whatever craziness we pursue into the future so lovely to talk to you just just contact me all the time let me know what 's going on if, if, if Time Team is a book, I'm, you know, I'm look, so looking forward to reading the next chapter. I think it's so brilliant that we've started all this again. And some of the old friends will be in it, I know, the ones who've survived. You know, there's, there's a growing list, as you and I know, of people who are now very poorly or have left this planet who are associated with Time Team. And I'm, I'm very excited to see what the next generation will do with it. And for you, you've got a series on the Thames coming out on Channel 5, is it? Or yeah, what you yeah on Channel 5. And I've also got um, another series called uh, Tony Robinson's History of Britain, which I've shot and is in the process of being edited, which, again, is about the mark of ordinary people within history. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm keeping, keeping up, waving the flag, passing on the baton. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. Uh, we could have gone on for a lot longer, but it's been great talking to you. Lovely hearing and catching up with all those memories and stay well. And I look forward to seeing um, your series when they come out next. Cheers, mate. And I'm oh. now going to press the button, which says leave. But give my love to everybody. Bye. <laughs> We can't do any of this work without you. So please subscribe, back us on Patreon and make sure that Time Team comes back again.